truth today. And that's a theme from Isaiah's uh, reading that Topper just read for us. That Jesus, or rather God, gives uh, truth to Isaiah. And Isaiah is to speak this truth to the people around him. And he's mocked for it. He's beaten for it. He's ridiculed for it. And yet he's still called to speak. In the gospel reading for today, Jesus talks about not just speaking truth, but acting out on truth. And building our lives on the truth of Jesus Christ. So we talk about the theme of truth for today. Which brings us to this great question. What is truth? How do you know what you know? It's the question, isn't it? How do you know what you know? And some say it's the question of this postmodern era. That in this postmodern era where truth is relative, you don't really know anything. You kind of think you know, but you can't really know for sure. But it's been an age-old question for a long, long time. Jesus got that question. Jesus is on trial before Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of that day. And Jesus says to him, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Did you know that? The reason Jesus came is to testify to the truth. He says, everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And Pilate retorts, what is truth? walks away. There are many in our world today who say that the only absolute truth is that there is no absolute truth. Which is logically impossible to say because if there is no absolute truth, then there is no absolute truth. You can't say there's no absolute truth because that's an absolute. Did you get that? But if uh, that doesn't matter for people who don't believe in absolute truth because they can hold Two truths that contradict each other simultaneously. So what is truth? How do you know what you know? Or how can you know anything at all? If you ask the philosophers, they will say that you can't. You can't know anything. Your senses can deceive you. Your your mind can be misled. You don't know anything at all. What I find fascinating is that no one actually lives like this. How many of you went into church today and were getting ready to sit down and thought, I wonder if this chair is actually there? (laughs) It's possible that my eyes are deceiving me. It's possible that the uh, touch receptors on the bottom of my legs could be misled. Maybe this chair is not actually there. How many of you did that today? No one actually lives like this. Nobody does. We all assume that the chair is there. We assume that. We assume that certain laws of nature work and are very, very consistent. We assume that if I drop this, it will fall and not float. We assume this. Still correct. All right, good to know. We're, We're doing well. We're doing well. We assume this. We investigate this world. We investigate this universe using our senses. We see trees. We feel dirt. We smell freshly cut grass. And we, by that, know this is a world. 
This world is, is real. The stuff around me is real. The people around me are real. And some of you are going, yeah, good job, Pastor. You have a great grasp of the obvious. Well, well done. But it leads to a second point. The second point is that this world not only is real, it's really well designed. It's really well designed. Nature, for lack of a better word, works. It works. Trees grow. Animals reproduce and, and thrive, for the most part. This world works really, really well. It works so well, in fact, that even atheists have trouble explaining why it works so well. Stephen Hawking is a, a self-avowed atheist. I'm sure you've heard of him. He wrote this. The odds against a universe like ours emerging out of something like the Big Bang are enormous. Did you hear that? The odds of this just happening by accident are enormous. I think there are clearly religious implications. It would be very difficult to explain why the universe would have begun in just this way, except as the act of a god who intended to create beings like us. So what atheists and agnostics do is they start out with a premise that there is no God, and then they find facts to fit that premise. But what most people in the world today do is they look around and they say, it's pretty well designed. It works really, really well. Must mean someone designed it. If you want to do an experiment on how well this world is designed, if you want to find out for, for yourself how this world works and how well put together it is, you can do an experiment in your very own house. And the experiment is this. Don't clean your house for a month. Don't pick anything up. Don't clean anything. Just live in it. See what happens. Would you imagine your house would be more orderly or less orderly after a month? Would, your house, would you imagine your house would be more clean or less clean after a month? Would it be more functional or less functional after that month? If you think your house would be more clean you don't ever move because you have a phenomenal house, right? Things fall apart. Energy goes downhill. And the more energy you have in your house, the more things fall apart. If you have toddlers in your house, things fall apart fast, right? That's just how things work. In fact, it is how things work. It's the second law of thermodynamics. Right, Dennis? All right, entropy. There's a natural tendency of any system to degenerate into a more disordered state. In other words, well-designed things don't just happen. They're designed. A creation that functions as well as ours does doesn't happen by accident. Somebody planned it. Someone designed it. 
Someone made it happen. And this matches scripture. We read this in Romans chapter 1, verse 20. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. In other words, creation indicates that there is a God. You look around us and you say, I didn't make this. No one I know made this. Someone else more powerful than me made this. There is a God. It doesn't tell us much about this God, but it tells us that there is a God because of what we can see. There's another sign. There's another sign pointing us towards the truth of God. And that sign is a knowledge of right and wrong. We know what's right. And we know what's wrong. Try this experiment. Imagine a world. Imagine a world where cowardice is celebrated. Imagine a world where lying is honored. Imagine a world where stealing is a virtue. Imagine a world where making fun of people is an art form. Some of you here think that sounds horrible. And others of you here think that sounds like Congress. Hmm. <laughs> Either way, it's not good. It's not good. And we all have a sense of right and wrong. In fact, there's a word for people who don't have that sense. And the word is sociopath. Right? When people don't have that sense of right and wrong, we go, there's something not wrong with their sense of right and wrong. There's something wrong with that person. That's a sociopath. If they have no sense whatsoever of right and wrong. Because 99.9% .9 of the world does. There's a knowledge there. And people from all cultures have said, you know, this tells us something about the nature and character of God. Since we have a sense of right and wrong, since we have a sense of, of justice and of, of ethics, that must mean that God does too. That God is a God of, of justice, that God is a, is a God of ethics, that God is a God of morality. Even the Greeks, uh, and if you read the Greek myths, not exactly optimistic about their gods. They're pretty pessimistic stuff there. But even the Greek myths had a sense of a standard of behavior and the presence of right and wrong. And that sense tells us not only about the character and nature of God, but it also tells us about our character and our nature. We know it's right and we know it's wrong. We all have that standard in our lives. And here's the really, really weird part. We know we don't meet the standard. Isn't that weird? If we had created our own standard of right and wrong, we would create a standard that we could actually attain. But we have a standard, and we know we don't meet it. We know there's times when we don't speak honestly. We know there's times when we say things and we know, boy, that was hurtful. I shouldn't have said that. 
we know there's times where we think things are like, boy, if my thoughts could be projected on a wall, that would be bad. We have a standard of right and wrong. Nice crap. But we don't follow the standard. Yeah, go get her. We don't follow the standard. And sometimes we know it immediately. And sometimes we have to take some time to reflect on it. But when we do, we go, wow, I, I don't match my own standard. And when that happens, we have a couple of options. We could ignore the standard. Just say, I know the standard, and I choose to ignore it. And we have a word for people like that. The word's usually train wreck, right? We're like, oh, that's dangerous. Don't go. That person's not, not safe, right? What a lot of people do is to change the standard. In fact, most people do this. Most change the standard. And you'll hear it in words like this. Well, I'm not perfect, but I'm pretty good. Is that funny? What a great thing to say. What a revealing thing to say. No, I'm not perfect, but I'm pretty good. In other words, I know the standard. I know I don't reach it, but we're going to go by a sliding scale here. And so you ask the question, well, how do you know you're pretty good? Well, I'm, I'm better than most. Well, how do you know you're better than most? I know a lot of great people. Well, I, I think it's, you know, just best you can do. That's the standard. It's a sliding scale. So we know the standard. And most people say, I know the standard, and I'm just hoping for the best. As a matter of fact, most religions in the world fall in this category. Islam, Taoism, Buddhism. There's a standard, and I know I don't reach it, but I'm hoping for the best. And they'll also use this as well. The other option is to uh, improve our behavior. I know there's a standard, and so I'll follow a system of beliefs or a system of rules, and I can improve my behavior. I can make rise myself up on the scale. And if I work hard enough, if I have a cause that I'm dedicated enough to, I'll get close. I'll never quite make it, but I'll get close. And inevitably, inevitably that person falls. And either just try, I'm going to try harder, I'm going to try harder, or they slip into depression because they know they, they can't try hard enough. There's a fourth option. There's only uh, one system of belief that holds this option. And that option is Jesus. So the option is, is find a savior. See, if I can't meet the standard that I, that I know I have, that I know is out there, that I know I can't maintain, that I, can't, that I know I can't reach, if I can't do that, maybe someone can do it for me. And that's Jesus. Jesus is the, the key that fits the lock. Jesus is the answer to the problem we, we all know we have. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, not only because I see the sun, because, but because by it, I see everything else. Jesus is the key that fits the lock. 
And he says that time and time again in the Gospels. He says not only does he contain truth, not only does he teach truth, not only does he live out truth, but he, he is truth. He put it this way. You say that I am king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into this world is to testify to truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Again, in John 8, to the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth. <laughs> These are great words. The truth will set you free. And again, John 14, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is truth. He's the key that, that fits the lock. And some of you are here wondering about that. Some of you are here to investigate Jesus. To see if he really is truth. And I pray that today you take a huge step. Take a huge step in, in trusting Jesus uh, for who he is and for what he's done for you. That his death on the cross was for you. That his uh, sacrifice was for you. That by his blood he covered over our sin, your sin. And makes you forgiven. And righteous. And God's. So you don't have to wonder anymore, am I good enough? Have I reached the standard? Am I working hard enough? I can just go, you know what? Jesus, thank you for your grace. I love you. Thank you for working in my life. Pray some of you are taking that step today. Maybe even right now. Some of you here are kind of just nodding your heads. Yep. Yep. Jesus is truth. Got it. Got it. Got it. I believe this all my life. Yep. I'm there. I'm there. Yep. But we haven't. We haven't believed this all of our lives. See, if we, if we really believed that Jesus was the way and the truth and the life, we, we wouldn't worry because Jesus provides. If we really believed Jesus is, is truth, we wouldn't struggle to find time to pray. We, we wouldn't. If we really believed that in prayer we come before the throne of God and the holy and almighty God is attending to our, our prayer and our concerns, we would not struggle to find time to pray. We would struggle to find time to leave prayer. That'd be the struggle, not praying, if we really believed. See, every one of us is like the man who said to Jesus, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Lord Jesus, I, I believe you. I believe you died on the cross for me. I believe you, you died to take away my sins, so that my eternity is secure and certain in you. Lord God, I believe it. It's just sometimes I have trouble acting on that belief. Sometimes I have trouble about that. Sometimes I worry. Sometimes I doubt. Sometimes I believe the lies. And the lies are all around us. Lies like, my value is determined by my performance, by my appearance, by my worth to those around me. We believe the lie. Instead of the truth that you are created by God and redeemed by a gracious Savior, we believe the lie. 
There's all sorts of lies you believe all the time. How many of you have heard this one? God helps those who help themselves. Have you heard that one before? It's a lie. Because it means your value and your worth to God depends on what you do. God helps those who help themselves. If you don't help yourself, well then, you're kind of out of luck. The Bible says God helps the helpless. And guess what? You're one of them. <laughs> God helps the helpless. God helps those who say, I, I need help. I need a Savior. I need Jesus. God helps the helpless. There's so many lies we believe all the time. And God invites us to, not just to believe his truth, but to rest in it. Jesus Christ, I'm yours. I'm yours. Each and every day, Lord God, I am yours. Because of that, I have worth. Because of that, I don't have to be afraid. Because of that, Lord God, I, I know you love me, and I know you care for me. Lord Jesus, you are truth. And you are with me. You died and rose for me. And I have purpose in this world. Because you redeemed me. Lord God, I get up every day and I wonder if what I'm doing today even matters. And Lord God, because you are creator, I matter. Because you redeemed me, what I do matters. At work, at home, my community with my family, it matters. It all matters. Because nothing is wasted. Because we're not just a blob of cells. You are created by God and redeemed by a gracious Savior. And all of our lives is a journey exploring discovering this truth by the grace of God the power of the Holy Spirit living in it Amen? Amen May the peace of God which passes all understanding may it guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord for life everlasting Amen Amen